You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. You're listening to Fisher Family Ghosts. A six feet under companion podcast. I'm Sam Dingman. I'm Adrian Bain. Adrian, we are back at our dining room table. I know. I can't believe we made it. Like, to be honest, I'm actually amazed that we are here right now. We got one little dink on the car. We got one ticket. One little trip to the emergency room. One trip to the emergency room. Everybody's fine. Don't freak out. And one fuck you Biden the whole time. At the Grand Canyon of all places. At the Grand Canyon, someone shouted fuck Biden. Listener, upon my Subaru, there is a sticker. The sticker reads, look, I'm just going to come out and say it. Biden-Harris. That's what the sticker says because those are the candidates that I personally was supportive of in the most recent presidential election. I voted independent. We have to have an offline conversation. (laughs) I didn't. I voted for Biden. You can vote for, anybody can vote for whoever they want to vote for. Mm -hmm. That's one of the beautiful things about this country, which is why it was so hideous when this Oakley'd goon. He was in a pickup truck and like had a camo hat. Shouted. I know, from, like, one lane over, too. These expletives at a place that's... We're all just here to see beautiful things. We're, yeah, we're here Buddy. to see, like, one of the most beautiful achievements that the Earth has ever made. But you know what? We're making it sound like our trip was very stressful. And on the whole, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Here's the deal, folks. We're about to watch the second episode of season two yep. of Six Feet Under. Yep. And it's all very exciting, but... First, I'm going to tell you something that's even more exciting. We got an email we got from a listener. Email. We got it's a new email. listener. We got in case email. you thought we only we had two email. listeners we got who email. wrote to us. We got it turns email. out we got at least three. And maybe even more. You could be one of them. You could be. By writing to us at FFG. We will sing or not sing at your request. Oh, yes. Probably. It's doubtful that you'll request it, given what has just transpired. <laughs> but you can you can make any request, actually up to a shockingly, <laughs> shockingly embarrassing level, and we will probably, yeah, we'll probably indulge yeah. because we are hungry for your love. Please write to us, ffg at walt.fm. Also, to Tracy and Leslie, who I think knew that they were the two listeners that I was referring to in our little improvised song there, we appreciate you very much. So much. We're just excited to have heard from yet a third fish head no, out there in the world. We killed fish heads. Well, we killed fish heads. That sounds like a felony. <laughs> This email comes to us from Noel. Hello, Noel. Hi, Noel. Thank you for writing. Noel says, I'm listening to your podcast and rewatching the show along with you. What Aww. a great way to spend your time, Noel. She says, It hasn't been years and years since I watched the show, and I've definitely watched it more than once before, mm. which is why I think I picked up on what I'm about to tell you about. <gasps> tell me. Jill Soloway was a writer for Six Feet Under and wrote a character named Arthur who you have not met yet, Adrian Bain. Oh, okay. Played by Rain Wilson. (gasps) 
He's an apprentice at the funeral home and ends up having a really strange relationship with Ruth. I could see that. He is dismissed from the apprenticeship and we never see him again. Okay. Until, three exclamation points, the series finale of the Amazon original show Transparent, also created and written by Jill Soloway. What? He, meaning Rain Wilson, is the funeral director for the Pfeffermans. It slowly dawned on me as I was watching it that they could be the same character. Wait. I did some research (gasps) and was right. Noelle! I love that there is a common character between two of my favorite shows and that the Pfeffermans could in some way be living in the same universe as the Fishers. Noelle, you are a stoop. You're a sleuth. A super sleuth. You're a TV sleuth. Yes. I Ah, love. I love that. That you discovered that. And I think it is tremendously cool in this era of, I'll go ahead and say it, excessive amounts of available information. Excessive. That it's not like Noel just, was just kind of lazily idling on the couch mm-hmm. with her phone in her hand and saw Rain Wilson and thought, oh, I'm gonna go and see what's happening. No, Noel had an original thought. She did. And then had that original thought affirmed, which means, Noel. You are a creative genius on par with Jill Soloway. Wow. Now, this is a charge to keep. Noelle, going to need you to go out and create an Emmy-winning dramedy. Mm-hmm. That has the Rain Wilson funeral director in it somehow. Who? Okay. Now, this is the question. Your challenge, Noelle, should you choose to accept it, this is, ridiculous. is can you create a third show that somehow brings the worlds of Transparent and Six Feet Under together. Hmm. I mean, I think it has to be one where Rain Wilson is the main character. And he, like, has flashbacks to his apprenticeship. Maybe David and Nate drop in every once in a while, are like, yo, I can't pick up this body. Can you get it? You know, Mm -hmm. like, maybe they share work. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're Mm -hmm. rivals. So much potential. Rife. Now, Noelle. I don't know if you are a Julia Louis-Dreyfus fan, <gasps> but the other night, Adrian and I watched Enough Said. Ugh. Oh, my God. Now- So good. This, what I'm about to say is, is, is a threading together of the HBO dramatic universe and the potentially the transparent Six Feet Under universe. Noel, it's on you to get this across the finish line. Because in Enough Said, we find Julia Uh Louis-Dreyfus, who plays Selena Meyer in Veep, James Gandolfini, who plays Tony Soprano in The Sopranos, in a movie together where they are both playing soft characters as opposed to the hard characters that they play on HBO. And the mother of Julia Louis-Dreyfus's daughter's best friend is played in Enough Said by Amy Landecker. Oh. So. What is happening to you right now? Noelle, the chess pieces are laid upon the table. It is for you to make the next move. Noelle, he doesn't talk to everyone like this. (laughs) No. He is weirdly delirious and excited at the same time. I only slept for four hours last night. I know, I don't like that. Because I was making a Family Ghost episode. That doesn't justify it. Hey. Sleep is important. Plug 
There's a new Family Ghost episode out. Please listen to it. I worked very hard on it. Mm. Noelle has one follow-up. Okay. She says, giving it some more thought, both shows, meaning Transparent and Six Feet Under, are about families living with secrets, and when we start out with both the Pfeffermans and the Fishers, they are almost strangers to each other, despite being related to each other. Hmm. See? Good call. Good pull. Noelle, your brilliance and your email are appreciated. Please respond with the title of the enough said transparent the yes. Sopranos Rain Wilson tie-in Leviathan series, Leviathan series that you are going to write. You just put a lot of pressure on a new emailer and I'm a little afraid that people are going to be disinclined to email because you give them homework afterwards. Fisher Family Ghosts, High Stakes Fandom. High Stakes. You're going to write to FFG at WALT.FM. Better come to play. No, you don't have to do this if you have like an active thriving life outside of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what it's like to have an active thriving life outside of podcasting. I don't... Because I am unfamiliar. I don't think most of us are right now. No, that's true. You know, most of us haven't seen friends in a minute. And of course, the best thing you can do during COVID or at any time is watch the TV show Six Feet Under. That's a great idea. We should do that right now. Let's proceed. Season two, episode two, coming right up. What do you think, Mom? It's very modern. We figure it'll pay for itself in less than eight months. What did we spend on this? Uh, yeah, about 20000 How much is left in the reserve fund I gave you? I'll have to check. I want a full accounting of how you spent that 93000 I'm an investor in Fisher & Sons. That wall is part of my investment, and I expect a return. <laughs> of course, Mom, but... I am speaking... Fiercely from the eye. Do you mind? First, I want to talk about the death Mm -hmm. and how that symbolizes the rest of the show. It starts as a competition. It's kind of survival of the fittest. Hmm. It's that culture in college athletics that is about sometimes you just got to give 110% champ and that's, that's how you get to the next level. Yeah. And we no- literally see the one kid drop from exhaustion. Yeah. And they're really worried about him. Yeah. And then he comes back from the brink. I know. And they stand him up and they're like, that's what a real football player looks like or something like that. Yeah. I couldn't help but think in that scene where you see Josh yes. uh-huh. and Sam, I think his name is, mm-hmm. sprinting and it's incredibly hot and they're... It's like they don't care that they're hot. They're they're trying to push past it. Right. I thought of Nate in that moment because mm-hmm. Nate finds out that he has this life-threatening medical condition and his first move is to go for a run. Mm. He thinks he, he, he can just run his way through it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that ends up being what Nate is in denial about over the course of the entire episode until the very end. Right. 
So that was, for me, I thought that's what that He keeps running from was. it. That's true. You said that towards the end when it pans down to him lacing up his shoes. Mm-hmm. I would also say that the heat is turned up in a lot of worlds. I think the heat is cranked up a little bit with the kroner. I think the heat is turned up with Claire and Gabe, obviously. The heat is turned up. I thought it was interesting that we got to see Keith's personal life, but that was heated. And the heat is also a little turned up with Ruth and Robbie, but kind of in a good way. Mm-hmm. So the heat was turned up with in this episode. Let's stay with Ruth and Robbie for a second, because the catchphrase of that group they go to see, which is called, I think, The Plan. Right. The catchphrase is, I am speaking from the I. Mm-hmm. And you said at another point during the episode, everybody is being very selfish in this episode and only thinking about themselves. Definitely. Or the idea of, I have to not just think about myself, which literally Trevor, Brenda's ex-boyfriend, says, is I I have to think about people other than myself. And a lot of this is, a lot of like, you're so selfish or trying to be selfless was thrown around in this one. Yes. Yeah. And and people are coming down on on both sides of it. Yeah. Nate is realizing that he, it, it, the responsible thing for him to do is to share what he's going through. It is a little selfish of him to not tell people what's yeah. going on. Brenda is starting to notice that he's checked out. Mm-hmm. But that's because Brenda herself is in the midst of this depression she says she doesn't even know who she is. Yeah. She doesn't know who the I she wants to speak from yeah. is. It's interesting because it is also, there's a lot of people who are reconfiguring their life. You know, like Ruth literally goes to that whole event where people are like, I don't know what they're learning, but it sounds like a bunch of Nexium stuff. But <laughs> it really does. And then Brenda ha- also has that moment. Of like, I don't know what my life is about. And then Gabe kind of has that same moment too, where he's like, everything I touch is turns to shit. Like yeah. it's a shitty Midas's touch. And Rico gets put in a position right. where Rico. he feels like I am the provider. That's who I am. I and his wife says, reality check, you are my husband. Yeah. Stop this performative. machismo Machismo nonsense. Yeah. And just be happy that our kids have a backyard. Yeah. Who cares where the money comes from? And who cares that it's my sister that, that did it? I know. I'm so curious about the writing of Rico. I'm mostly just curious and would love to know if there are any like Latino listeners. I just am curious if it's overplayed at all. This actually brings up something I wanted to talk about. Since since we here's a segue for you. Since we are talking about uncomfortable racial stereotypes, mm-hmm. one of which I do feel comfortable talking about, and one of which I don't, but will anyway. Parker in this episode, Claire's friend, mm-hmm. is like a cartoon version of a bad kid. Like she comes up to, she her first line of dialogue, it, it's just all so expositorily rebellious. She says, oh, well, this uh, this one guy that I was friend with, friends with, or this one yeah. girl that I was friends with until I had sex with her brother. Yeah. It's like, okay, Parker, like we get it. Yeah. And then when she comes up to Claire later, she's like, did you hear? 
Andy was doing fry. I know. Oh, you don't know what fry is? Loser. It'll totally change your life. But anyway, I'm totally freaked out. What about you? It's like dialogue from a video you would watch in health class. Yeah. I don't really feel like they've ever nailed Parker's dialogue. Yeah. She always comes across a little bit that way to me. Yeah. I don't know. So I guess with Rico... A part of me was like, that feels very real, you know? And I really love that his wife called him out for that machismo nonsense. She's like, I do not have time for this. I want a house. I do not care. Well, when you say it felt real to you, what do you mean? I think she was saying what, maybe real isn't what I want to say. I think what I want to say is that I loved that she said that because Mm -hmm. I wanted her to say that. Because as a woman, I was like, I don't want to deal with your dumb fucking masculinity issues right now. Like, that's what it is. Big picture, Rico. Big picture. Right. But I think that also he probably felt like, I cannot believe that you are minimizing me in my own place of work that has also minimized me. So part of me is like, how much of it is the machismo and how much of it was this feeling where Rico was like, I don't feel like I how can really throw my weight around here. Like other people are doing it for me and I don't like that, you know? Well, one of the things I was thinking in that moment is, and fact check me on this as I'm talking about it, please. But I think Rico is one of the only characters in the show where we don't know anything about his family. You mean his parents? I guess all we know is his cousin. And we know his Wife. And we know his wife. But but we know his chosen family, but right. We don't know his parents. But I, we don't know his brothers and sisters. Meeting his cousin, who was also Carlos on Desperate Housewives, which yes. I was so excited by. Can I just say I thought of Noelle in that moment? Mm-hmm. There was another moment where the universe of another show oh entered this one, except not really, because no, it's just the same actor. It's ABC, <laughs> and Carlos is a very different person. Yeah, those are Carlos not. Carlos has already made like a bajillion dollars by the time... Although, what if Carlos in Desperate Housewives, like, what if Ramon is like, forget this whole contractor thing. Actually, yeah. I'm going to become a lawyer. Time-wise, he has two years to become some hotshot. So, actually, I, I take back what I said. Could happen. But so, what we know is that from that brief interaction with Carlos, I'm just going to call him that, we know that his extended family thinks that he's being... What did he say? I don't... He calls him a candy ass. Sure. As in, he's Like you're sucking up to your wife and Under his wife's thumb. Right. So, which is another thing that gets accused a few times because I think... What's her name? Parker? Parker. Says to Claire, oh, you don't want to pussy whip him. Right. Which is... Which is... I just... Toxic in a different way. Oh, yeah, totally. Both are toxic. Parker is toxic. (laughs) I know. Like the joint that Andy smokes. Mm -hmm. So I think that in this episode, Rico feels very pushed around by a lot of different people. And he has this moment of like, I need to feel like I am in control of something and that I am the man that I want to be. And she's like, shut up and just get me my fucking house. I just brought up the family thing for Rico because. I feel like throughout the show, we see him look at other people and other characters in the show. He sees that family kind of has their back when they don't have anywhere else to turn. Hmm. And that's what he literally does with Nate and David. 
he says, we don't have enough money, which is an incredibly vulnerable thing for him to do. I know. Can you help me out? And they say no. And, you know, he's literally wanting to be a partner, essentially a brother yeah. in this business, and they, and they won't give it to him. Why do you think he wants it so much? I think it's because he sees what it means to have, to be a part of a family. And I think in his mind to specifically to be a male family member who has these backstops in place. And it seems like he doesn't have a lot of experience with that in his own life. And he feels like, he feels like he needs to manufacture it somehow. And it seems like he thinks the way of, the way to do that is to work so hard that Nate and David finally hmm. welcome him. Yeah, that's a good point. Now I am curious what his family backstory is. As long as we're talking about race stuff, I want to try this. You tell me if you think I'm reaching. But I guess I was struck by when Josh, the football player's parents, mm-hmm. come to the funeral home. Mm-hmm. And they're very sad, of course, because their son has just died. That one really hurt. I was trying to think, how many other shows do you think there were in 2002 that showed grieving black parents? Not because of some stereotypical... They were grieving black parents and they weren't grieving because their son was like a drug dealer or a gangbanger, but because he was a football prodigy who got heat stroke and they clearly have plenty of money. They're willing to spend it on that casket. And this could be a limitation on my own viewing behaviors, but I just hadn't seen, even though it's a very small scene and it, yeah. we move away from them after that. And it's the dad who's crying. And it's the dad who's crying. It's, it's vulnerable black male masculinity. It's beautiful. And the same with Josh, who we see crying and I saying know. that he's scared the whole time. It just made me realize, uh, I'll say it this way, it made me realize how limited my perception of the black experience has been by virtue of the media I've consumed totally over the course of my life because obviously those are real scenes that happen in households of all races. Yeah. But you don't see it in a lot of media that's marketed to white audiences. Totally. And I appreciated that Six Feet Under portrayed that. Yeah. And it was interesting too because later in the episode we do see in the scene between Keith and his sister a more stereotypical portrayal of a black household where the father is absent and the mom is yeah. on drugs and it's terrible, but those are the types of, that's a way that black characters are often pigeonholed. Tef- yeah. So it was kind of interesting to see both of those things in the same episode. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. If I am being insensitive or clumsy about this, please write in and say so. Yeah. I'm really holding back with this one because so much of me thinks that I'm looking at with 2020 eyes. And because I was, I thought it was really interesting that like, it seemed like there was this just amicable, like, I guess in their terms, like playful uh, friendship between like a white guy and a black guy, which I was like, oh, that's great. 
and the two football players, the two football players. But I was like, why is it that the black one is the one who dies? Well, I felt like there was something, maybe I'm overreaching here, but it felt like that was in a way they wanted us to think about that. They wanted us to think about the fact that Josh is clearly the one who puts in the effort. He's the one pushing Sam to run yeah. harder and, yeah. and setting the, literally setting the pace for yeah. him. And yet, and yet he's the one who gets punished for it. The white kid is the one who gets valorized and gets the credit. Ugh. Whereas from the the black kid, it's it's that's just expected. So true. Oh fuck, that's so true. Because then I was also thinking about like all of the stress that comes with systemic racism and how like black women are more likely to die from childbirth today. You know, like that still happens in like just that chronic stress and how COVID has really disproportionately affected like black and people of color minorities. Like part of me is also like, I'm, I just, that's 2020 eyes. I can't expect them to have thought of that back then. But like, that's just also what I thought was like, he's working harder and also has to like carry the weight of all these racial like stigmas with him and it ends up like killing him. But that's totally my own projection. Yeah, true. But I do think, one, I think the show was prescient about many things or or willing to talk about things that were always going on well before other people were. And I think you've, I mean, you've really put your finger on something that you hear lots of black folks talk about, which is, and anybody from a marginalized group, really, that like we are expected to work harder than everybody else just to make it to the baseline level of expectation for white people. I think that's so astute that the white kid is the one who finishes last, passes out, is helped, and then kind of venerated a little bit while everybody ignores, oh, God. While the other kid literally dies. I know. I thought it was really interesting that he was the one who symbolized Nate's fear. Maybe minorities in general, we don't typically demonstrate them as being afraid, you know, and afraid for like existential reasons, you know. So I thought that that was really interesting. Well, and it feels weird to decouple this conversation from race since we were just talking about it in the context of race. But I think in that part of what's going on in those scenes where Nate visualizes Josh or sees Josh is that Josh is saying, don't, don't make the mistake that I did. Don't think that you can just push past your limits without mm. consequence oh. because it is a, you will end up making a very grave sacrifice. Mm. Speaking of, of role reversals and. Is that something you're interested in? <laughs> yes, please put on this fake mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Another interesting role reversal that happens is that is a little bit more playful and maybe has a, a racial edge to it is we see Vanessa be incredibly giddy in the scene in the house. Totally. She has no chill. It's abundantly obvious that she wants the house. The saleswoman clearly picks up on that and realizes this is not going to be a tough sell even though there may, it is suggested, be some issues with the house. She's going to close this deal and Vanessa's going to buy it. 
And then we see David in the Vanessa role in the scene where they're being shown the coffin showroom. I know. And he's incredibly giddy. He has no chill. He's like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's the only time we've seen David have no chill. Yeah. And like, the sales- even after he took ecstasy. Yes, he's happier in this scene, I think. (laughs) And we see the salesman in that scene make this very minor concession on the price because he knows he's got them. Right. Um, So I thought that was, there was something interesting about that. There's an interesting little parallel play there. Too. Hmm. And it works out for both of them in the end. Well, sort of. Yeah. Because now David and Nate are selling... Kroner caskets. caskets. They're literally putting money in Kroner's pocket yeah. every time they sell a coffin. Oh. So, I, I mean, more to come on that, obviously. We need to talk about possibly the biggest and most provocative question in this episode. Mm-hmm. And I say that with full awareness that I just made some potentially clumsy points about race, which is we find out in this that Brenda faked bipolar disorder symptoms for Charlotte Light and Dark. Yeah. She just read up on what the symptoms were and enacted them and convinced this psychologist that that was what she really had. Can we trust any of the emotions Brenda has displayed particularly of late. Like, can we trust this depressive episode that she's in the midst of, or is she performing it for Nate? Oh my God. That is provocative. The femme theory in me wants to say that you're minimizing women's feelings. (laughs) Um, Fair. I know there is, I feel like Brenda is sick of the game. I think that with Nate, she's really able to be the closest to herself that she can be. And she doesn't even know who that is. She is not speaking from the, what is it, furious eye? From my fiercest eye? Fiercest eye, that's it. I'm speaking from, I'm going to yell that at you someday. I'm speaking from my fiercest eye. I will cower in fear. That's right. So she doesn't know what that is, but I think that with Nate, she feels the closest to it. I think she's tired. I think she's tired of all of the bullshit that her family has put her through. And she sees that like, oh, I could have been on like a book tour if my family hadn't royally fucked me up. So I think she's really tired. I don't think that, I don't think her depression is, False. I think that she really is having this existential, like, what is my point and why am I, you know, do I like anything that I'm doing? Because even though she talks about the acupuncture and Trevor is like, oh, don't you like it? And she's like, yeah, I do. You know, she just kind of writes off like, oh, it is intellectual. It is a science. You know, it's been around for 2000 years, but like she doesn't go into it. She doesn't give us, like, the nitty-gritty, what's, like, the most unique thing that you could say about this. So. Right. She can quote a fact about it, but it doesn't seem to be core to her. It's not core understanding to her, being. Of her It's not her sacred work. Yeah. So I think she's, that was a little bit of a glow. I thought that them, no, 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 they, they do. I thought that the children thing was going to be blown up a little bit more than it was. The children thing? Like the fact that 
Trevor and Dawn have a child. I thought that either Nate or Brenda were going to fixate on having a kid. And they didn't, which I thought was really interesting. But Brenda did say they seem to have a completeness. But I think that's more because it seems as though Trevor and Dawn are doing what they love and just happen to have a family, you know, and like, and they love their family, obviously, but like they seem complete on both levels. So, yeah. Can I challenge you a little bit on that? Sure, go for it. Because do we find out what Trevor does? No, I don't think we do. I sort of think that there's something going on in that scene. Did he say, no, he says that he did some research out in Seattle. He said, yeah, he makes oblique reference to research. Yeah. But I sort of think what's going on in that scene is that she realizes that Trevor is another sort of parallel. He has kind of submitted to Dawn as Dawn yeah. is the alpha totally in, is. in that relationship. Yeah. Kind of like Rico's wife. Yeah, a lot of women calling the shots in this one. Yeah. And I think part of what Brenda realizes after that dinner is I thought of Trevor as this beautiful, self-sufficient man in my youth and that I needed to show that I could prepare this amazing dinner and that I have completeness too. And then at the end, she realizes Dawn is the one that I envy. Yeah. Because Dawn is the one who has a very clear sense of self. Yeah. Whereas Trevor, as you pointed out, literally says, well, I'm not really living for myself. I'm yeah. living for my kid and, and yeah. by extension for my wife. Not that there's anything wrong with an unselfishness around those things. But yeah, I think that the shine around Trevor was dimmed for Brenda. I think she kind of says that too, because she's like, didn't you notice how gross his ears were? Yes. And I was like, that's hilarious. I also thought it was interesting to your point about kids. There is a moment where Nate looks down at their kid and the kid is driving cars up his arm and he says, oh, careful, buddy, that's a toll road. And the kid laughs and he looks at the kid and then he looks at Brenda. And for a second- You think that- You think he's thinking, I want to have a family with this person. That's what I was thinking. And then he's realizing, I have to tell her, I have to tell her. Yeah. I found that very moving. Yeah. But also like Josh, his fear symbol is the kid. So it's not only like I have to tell her, but it's like, this is what could happen to your kid. Right. And then the next thing that happens after he has the vision of Josh is that the kid totally spazzes out yeah. in his face. I know, I never want to deal with that. And Don says- uh, Sometimes he does that just for attention. Sometimes he does that just for attention. He acts irrational just for attention. And, and then Brenda's Brenda- like, I do that too. I do that too. So can we trust anything Brenda says or does? I don't know. The inverse of my- saucy claim about Brenda mm -hmm. is that she has been doing that all her life. And what's going on with this depression that she's in right now is she's kind of like feeling her feelings for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Because Nate gives her space to. I know. It's beautiful. Makes her feel welcome. I don't think that. I don't know. I think she's tired of the ruse. I think that she probably did look up. I think one of Brenda's streaks is she likes fucking with people because she knows that she's smart. Yeah. She knows she can pull it over people mm -hmm. and 10 year old her liked doing that. And we've yeah. seen her kind of fuck with people all throughout. 
And I think it's that impish nature that makes her seem not trustworthy. But I am curious if we can trust on whether or not she says like, oh, I just looked those terms up and I just behaved that way. Yeah. Because part of me is like, I believe that. But then the other part is like, are you just saying that in front of this woman to impress her? Or is her fiercest eye in the process of opening? (laughs) Okay, one last thing in terms of 2021 eyes. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was interesting that Mitzi says in passing, the economy is in the tank. You know, nobody's hiring right now. Nobody's expanding, Mm -hmm. which I believe is a ref. This was 2002, so it would have been just after September 11th. Mm -hmm. I just think it's interesting that, I just think it's interesting that much in the same way that now TV shows and movies are having to decide, does this story take place in a world where COVID happened? Yeah. That was a moment, like there were in so many shows, but I think it's easy to forget now. Oh, yeah where everybody was having to decide, is this a world where September 11th happened? Oh, yeah. And that felt like an implicit reference Hmm. to it without actually taking it on. And I guess I just wanted to bring that up because I think that is that kind of moment is the sort of thing we're going to see and parse for the next however many years in all new stories that are told. That's so interesting. I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about how, yeah, TV and everyone is going to have to have the COVID question. Yeah. Because I, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And I am thinking in this moment, it doesn't bother me at all that Six Feet Under did not take on 9-11 in their storytelling. Yeah. And I'm sure at the time there were a lot of people who felt like 9-11 is everywhere. I want to watch something where I don't have to think about 9-11. Exactly. I just want to think about death. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but I wonder if at the time they felt pressure to at least nod to it and this was the solution they came up with. It was just 20 or 19 years ago that was a that was a call that had to yeah. be made. Well, I guess my only retort to that is they are in California and people who are here on home turf had an extremely different experience than people who are on the other side of the country. So I can kind of understand that it it felt like a far off distant mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, event for them. Whereas with COVID, it's a little different because I think everyone, every household has had a completely different time with this. Absolutely. And everyone's worlds have been upended and rearranged in ways that they could have never anticipated. So I think also to... And the psychological repercussions we will have when we're allowed to, like, be around people again is going to be so individualistic that, you know, like, I might be like, I can't be in crowds for a little bit. And other people might be like, I can only mosh pit for the rest of my life. (laughs) So I don't, I think that that's fine that they skirt around it because everyone's responses are so different. And the line is said by, you know, we were talking about selfishness at the beginning of this conversation. Mitzi is one of the most extraordinarily selfish characters. Totally. In the entire show. I did love that she was like, just because you fucked me doesn't mean you get to talk to me by my first name. I loved that. You're telling me. She's the, she was speaking from her fiercest eye. She was speaking from her fiercest eye. 
Folks, thank you for listening to Fisher Family Ghosts. We love communicating with all of you. Noel, Tracy, Leslie, the hippie. We know you're out there. Noel, obviously that's your favorite song. If you would like to be as cool as these fine people, send us some love or some hate or some spicy debate. A poem that I just wrote. You can write, too. I wish you could see how many times I shake my head while talking to and you, And how listeners. pleased with myself I am. Oh, my God. FFG at WALT.FM is our email address. Adrian Bain, are you doing any other work in the podcast industry that you would like these good people to know about? I am. I am currently working on my travel podcast, which is called Strangers Abroad. And there will be some new episodes about our recent trip, if you would like to know the other side of our life. And so you can find that, Strangers Abroad, on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow me on Instagram. Please listen to the newest episode of Family Ghosts, the Family Ghosts show that doesn't have Fisher as the first word in its title. That's our incredibly boring tagline. Just kidding. The tagline is every house is haunted. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, I was up very late last night finishing the most recent episode, but I'm very proud of it. You mean early this morning? I do. Listeners, tell Sam to get more sleep. See you at sunrise, my little audio waveform children. <laughs> that's my name See, for... That's what is you that better than fish heads as a name for the listeners? <sighs> my little audio waveform children. Children is weird. It's familial. Audio waveform friends, Audio, I like. Yes. Okay, wave friends. Bye-bye. We wave to you, friends. This is what you sound like when you're talking about sleep. We wave goodbye. <laughs>